and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Katie Balls. This week, the debate over transgender rights rumbles on in the wake of proposed reforms to the Gender Recognition Act. Is there a trans orthodoxy shutting down debate on the issue? Are parents a right to be concerned that teachers may be hiding their child's trans issues from them? Meanwhile, across the channel, French socialist Jean-Luc Mélenchon is aiming to unseat an increasingly unpopular Emmanuel Macron. So does Mélenchon have a chance of becoming president? First, Madeleine Kearns describes how teachers are at the front line of the transgender politics, being given new guidance on primary school children's gender identity, telling them to avoid outing a trans pupil to their parents. And in James Kirkup's article this week, he argues that there is no room for dissent with the trans orthodoxy. Their concerns over the change to the Gender Recognition Act are too quickly labelled transphobic. Madeline joins me today together with India Willoughby, a transgender activist, newsreader and television personality. Madeline, in your article in The Spectator this week, you start by saying that on trans issues, children are seen as experts and teachers must affirm and facilitate. Can you explain a little bit more about the situation in schools that you witnessed? Sure. So I trained as a teacher in Scotland in 2016 and we had a workshop from a group called LGBT Youth Scotland. And in the course of that workshop, we were encouraged to decorate our classrooms with posters of transgender people and we were given a definition of transgenderism because many of us weren't quite sure what was meant which was certainly more expansive than the one I was used to hearing and that was that it could really uh, be anyone who doesn't feel comfortable in their own body which is what we traditionally thought of to somebody who maybe just likes to wear clothing typically associated with the opposite sex. And we were told that the way we could identify transgender children would be that they would tell us that they, they were transgender. And the, among many things, we were told information at quite a fast rate, so it was quite difficult to keep up. But among many things, we were told quite emphatically that if the, if the child told us this, um, it was to be our little secret and we were to pass that information on to them directly. And it only involved parents if the child said that was okay. India, in both the pieces this week, James and Maddie touch on the idea that in schools it has changed significantly how people who have thoughts about their gender are treated and also how the conversation is broached. Do you mark it as progress what's happened? I think there's definitely great progress. You know, people are a lot more open. And I can only talk from my own experience growing up in the 70s or 80s, even as a child. And I knew from day one, I've never wavered from the fact And that's where it's like being transgender. It's not like a sexuality thing where you're finding yourself. Let's separate right at the beginning sexuality and gender, two completely different topics. As much as I know who I am, Madeline knows who she is, and the two people around me at the moment during this broadcast, you know who you are. You've probably never questioned it, but for a trans person, you've always questioned it. And I think the biggest dynamic that has actually changed is because... There is now a conversation and people are more willing to come forward at a younger age and more parents are willing to listen. The one thing I will agree with that opening introduction from Maddie was the fact that I think the expansion of the word transgender does cause problems and it's a self-inflicted wound. And I'm actually classed as the bad girl of trans, if you like, because I will speak out just as much against certain issues in the LGBT world as I will on the feminist side. Radical feminists, certain factions are very much opposed to this. But 
the essence of this is that children, they're a blank page. You know, they know that they're not being affected by other factors. I agree that could be a case now, sadly, in terms of adults. But children, I think it's good advice. Children do know who they are. I think they should be respected. And I think the advice on the whole that's been given to teachers is good. Do you think it's right that parents are not told about the child's gender identity initially? Again, I think it's one of these issues where, you know, that you do have to respect the child. It's as simple as that for me. If the child is comfortable with letting the parents know, great. But if they're not at that stage... Madden, do you have a concern that impressionable children will be vulnerable to the suggestion that they have gender dysphoria? Yeah, well, the, the thing is, I would actually like to just backtrack a little bit because one of the biggest problems in entering into this debate is that we start with the premise that when a child declares that they are transgender, they are transgender. And that's what we go with and we move on from there. But my question to India would be, I mean, how can you tell which children are going to have gender dysphoria which persists into adulthood and which children are not? Because I actually, so speaking about lived experience and things, I spoke to a transgender woman who is male to female here in the US and she was telling me that she had a similar experience to you, India, she knew from a very young age that she was in the wrong body. But she said she was very grateful that she had her childhood and this wasn't really brought up because it gave her an opportunity to explore different options. And then when she reached adulthood, she was in a position to think more critically and seriously about what her options were. And she eventually chose a transgender identity and now lives happily with a transgender identity. But she has expressed to me a lot of concerns that this is just a conversation that's happening way too early on. It's confusing for children. I disagree with India. I don't believe children do know what they are. I I have worked as a nanny. I've worked with special needs kids. I think children are confused about what they want to have for breakfast, never mind Mm. what gender they are. And and I think it's it's important that we do recognise that children are children and that playing around with boundaries is a normal part of childhood and not to read too much into it uh, and and I think watchful waiting which was the traditional approach is a better approach mm. well my reply to that would be with the greatest respect obviously you are a teacher you're a nanny and you're a journalist now but you're not a gender specialist and at the end of the day that Could is you just tell me what is a gender specialist well it's it's, it's a medical having gender dysphoria has been a recognized medical condition around the world now for 50 years that's right mm-hmm. and the recognized medic there is a recognized medical route that people go down i don't want to get into the adult side we're talking about the children here and the thought that actually there's some secret part of the nhs which Let's be honest, any medical condition, it's a struggle now getting treatment and there are invariably waiting lists. The the idea that there is some secret part of the NHS that is fast-tracking children into these decisions is ridiculous. I don't think it's secret. I think it's happening in plain sight. And you think it's fast-track? Well, just, just to go back, I'd like to... You raised the point of expertise and I'm glad you did. So one of the fun things about being a journalist is you get to talk to a lot of experts yeah, and that's what I've been doing. Who's I've been actually talking to trans- doctors, paediatricians. Let's go one at a time on the... Let's not talk over each other. So you finish your point and then we'll go back to India. Mm. Okay. So I have been talking to lots of experts who have been telling me about their concerns and obviously studies vary widely, but the studies do show 
of the ones that we have, the existing studies that we have, that one in 10,000, approximately one in 10,000 natal males have gender dysphoria from an early age, and about one in 30,000 natal females have gender dysphoria at an early age. So given the rarity of the condition, would a more cautious approach not kind of follow? Because that is what the experts I've been talking to have been telling me. Now, to just extend the, the point about expertise, when we were, had our training, I was quite curious because, you know, obviously I, I'm quite young myself and I, I have much to learn about the world. And so I wanted to know what the expertise of the person giving the training was. And so I looked, at, I looked them up and it turns out that they were a former teacher, really not much more qualified than I was. And they had an, a, a title which was Education Capacity Building Officer, which I don't really know what that means. Uh, maybe you could tell me. And so I think when we're talking about gender experts, I, I'd like to be very specific here about whether we're talking about psychiatry, whether we're talking about paediatrics, whether we're talking about academic theory, because all of these distinctions really, really matter. I agree and I with think that. It, yeah, it's, it's really important and to clarify who the gender specialists are. And they're all clinicians. They're all medically trained. And they're either on the psychology side or the surgical side. So there's... You know, they, they're qualified in their subject a lot more with the greatest respect than somebody who's a nanny or a teacher. In terms of studies yeah, so, uh, for every... Know, Madeline, let um, India finish yeah. her comments. Yeah. For, for every study that Madeline could bring up suggesting something about transgender people, I could actually bring up a one that counters it as well. And do you know what, guys? Actually, I am transgender. It's great to hear from people who are on the outside who've never had gender dysphoria, never been affected. I'm a normal person. I pay my taxes. I'm not a threat to anyone. I know for a fact that nobody could convince a child to swap gender through brainwashing or confuse them in any way. And quite honestly, if you listen to this conversation, and it will be interesting in 20 years' time when someone is trawling through the Spectator archives... If you had this conversation now, and every time you hear the word trans or transgender, you imagine that the word is either black or gay or any other minority group that at some stage has been misunderstood, it takes on a whole different tone. So just on the topic of experts, when you start to look at some of the charities uh, that are consulting and giving lots of the schools advice... Lots of them are, you know, for example, you have parents who have a transgender child or a child that is identified and they obviously think that's what was qualifying them to speak with authority on the issue. So I was just wondering, when it comes to the, also you have the charities like Stonewall and so forth, and what do you think qualifies someone to speak on this issue? Because a lot of the time it isn't to do with a medical degree, and it's because someone mm. has lived through it. And that has led to concerns that it's very hard to reason with someone if you don't have that experience yeah. yourself what was that last phrase you don't have that experience yourself and i agree with you and that is the core of this argument all the people who complain or try and insinuate that transgender people are either a threat or confused in some way are not transgender they're not involved in the subject on a medical side they don't have relatives who are transgender they're not transgender themselves so Putting those qualities as opposed to each other, I think the fact that the charities involved, mermaids being the best known with regard to children, you have people involved in there who are families, they're ordinary people, they lead normal lives, day-to-day -day basis, they have an unhappy child 
who through being helped and supported by the parents become happy and what business is it of other people on the outside i can i could honestly i could understand this if this was some sort of threat to society and you know civilization as we know it was at risk of coming to an end but it's not transgender people have been around since time immemorial every culture every single demographic all that's happening now is it's more open maddie what would you say to that yeah, I would be interested to know if India has access to my medical records because I do find it quite stunningly presumptuous, the idea that you know whether I've had gender dysphoria or not, whether you know whether I've been personally affected by these issues. I mean, I will say that I have spoken to a great many number of people in the transgender community at this point as part of an investigative series I'm doing for National Review. I've spoken to a formerly trans teenager who explained at great length what is your interest interested and what's your motivation what's your motivation to be interested in this subject child welfare child welfare so you what would you recommend then that that children are allowed to go through puberty do you think that children should be no matter how much they protest and how persistent and consistent their voicing of the fact that they're in the wrong body that they should be allowed to go through puberty Right, so the, the, the term that the gender clinicians use is insistent, consistent and persistent. Right, well, children are insistent, consistent and persistent about a great many number of things, especially, by the way, autistic children um, who, who are disproportionately represented in these cases. Honestly, I can't and listen to this because it's just like ludicrous. Persistent and consistent. There is nothing in the NHS. Even if you said every day for a year, okay, for a full, full 12 months, the NHS wouldn't do anything to you as a child. It's, we're talking periods of years. And surely if that makes somebody happy, just listen to this conversation with instead of the trans word, he a gay or black, ridiculous, presumptive claims made about a group that somebody knows nothing about. India, one of the things that obviously some people say about trans rights activists is they can be too hasty in shutting down debate. Do you think that is an unfair allegation? Absolutely. You've only, I mean, you have to look at the vested interests here. Invariably, it's radical feminists who are known as TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists. You can go on any website, something like Mumsnet, which initially, you know, on the surface would seem very benign. But if you go in the feminist chat, corner if you do it now there will be threads equating trans people with paedophilia grooming etc etc and honestly it is an identical conversation that people had about other groups back in the 60s and the 70s and that was the reason that i was raising the comparison with gay there is no comparison between gender and sexuality bringing the context of talking about a specific minority there are great parallels yeah, and then just looking at the Gender Recognition Act, um, that means that changes to it would mean that someone can legally self-identify without a doctor's certifica- certification. Mm. Um, do you welcome that change or do you think it presents a potential risk? I think that there definitely needs to be, if you're going down the medical route, there needs to be a degree of gatekeeping and there needs to be medical people involved. And this is where I do have a slight beef with some of the people who are putting the proposals forward from the LGBT side. However, for the greater good, we are literally talking about an admin process. If you're going to live your life a particular way, 
you're going to live it that way. And if somebody wants to conjure up the spectre or the phantom, this B-movie scenario that some man, and it's interesting we never really talk about female to male transgender people who because they exist as well, but they conjure up this horror B-movie scenario where some predatory guy will dress as a woman and then enter women's spaces and attack at will. Well, first of all, I don't believe that is going to happen. And even if it did, the fact that let's imagine that's, that attack was taking place and in one hand he's wafting a piece of paper saying, I've got my certificate. The Bobbies and the Rosers aren't going to trot off and say, oh, well, we can't touch you. Get on with it. There are good and bad people in the world. And it is simple as that, whether you've got brown hair, blue eyes, you support Manchester United, you're left handed, good and bad. And it's as simple as that. And finally, Madeline, I mean, looking at the issue, obviously, we're seeing higher numbers of pupils now come forward with thoughts about what their gender should be. Do you accept that in some cases, this is a welcome change? Because these are conversations that they perhaps wouldn't have been comfortable to have had five, 10 years ago. Like gay people. Yeah, sure. Look, these are these are all issues which are around about us. It doesn't do anybody any good to have their head in the sand. I'm talking about what is age appropriate and also what is confusing to children. The way this information is being presented, uh, the, the content of the information itself, the, ass- the assertions made without really any scientific backing. No, uh, lots of and scientific the, the, backing. The orthodox, that- the, the orthodox nature of it, and all of that is, is, is incredibly unhelpful, actually. And do you know who it also doesn't help? It doesn't help uh, the transgender adults who have spoken to me about it and saying they're not happy with this development. Because actually, what, what the, the transgender adults who have talked to me have said is that they want to be treated with respect and dignity and compassion and actually just kind of left alone. And this isn't helping. And that's their words, not mine. So take it up with them. Final word to India. So if your friends want to be left alone, why are you sticking your beak into it and stirring it around? Child Honestly, welfare. No, no, let Child me finish. Welfare. Let me... So Maddie said there that there is no groundswell among the the medical community to support this. Honestly, with the best will in the world, if you haven't got an agenda, just go online and look. It's It's been recognised as a medical condition for 50 years. The same pathway, the same treatment, the world round. We can accept that people are born with nine fingers, you know, a dodgy heart, maybe sight problems or deafness and whatever. But for some reason, a certain type of person can't countenance the idea that whatever's in our brain that dictates gender sometimes doesn't match up. And it's an interesting fact, actually. Not a lot of people know this. I'm doing my Michael Caine impression. But all men on planet Earth have had a sex change because for the first six weeks in a fetus, everyone is female. It's one of the reasons men have nipples. However, we develop in different ways. And the latest biology, proper doctors, not teachers, not nannies, the doctors will tell you that it's all to do with the hormonal mix that happens in the womb and sometimes there's a spike of one particular hormone which ends up with a mismatch which why you end up with the cliche the brain doesn't match the body i can't have a brain transplant unfortunately so i've got to bring my body into line and it's simple as that thanks madeline in india hello i'm sam leith literary editor of the spectator and i present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the 
best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. In this week's magazine, Jonathan Miller takes a look at French socialist politician Jean-Luc Mélenchon, now polling as Emmanuel Macron's strongest opponent. Jonathan draws parallels between Mélenchon and Jeremy Corbyn, who both met at last week's Labour conference. He argues, however, that Mélenchon has no hope of becoming president, calling him a career socialist hack and citing his party's poor electoral performance. Jonathan joins us now together with Olivia Tonno, a Cambridge academic. Olivia, you have championed Mélenchon for years. What is it that you see in him? So Mélenchon is a very interesting figure. He is indeed comparable, broadly speaking, to, say, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn or Podemos in Spain, in that he is someone who is trying to recreate a force on the left that is not contrary to what is said, for instance, in uh, Jonathan Miller's piece, the extreme left or nothing to do with Fidel Castro is basically where social democratic parties were in the 80s before they drifted rightwards. And the originality of Mélenchon compared to Corbyn is that he actually left the Socialist Party in, back in 2008 because he was quite convinced that it could not be dragged back leftwards and created his own force. And it had various incarnations, but from 2008 to 2017, he has managed to build a very credible opposition force which I find, I think is very interesting of itself, and also his program, which Jonathan Miller described as uh, very uh, vague and hollow, is actually extremely detailed. It has been composed with uh, the help of a great number of high-flying civil servants, as well as academics and professionals from all walks of life. And I think, to me, it is one program that answers the very serious uh, issues that we are faced with today, namely climate change and inequalities and democracy. And he is now leading Emmanuel Macron in some opinion polls in France. Do you think there are lessons that Jeremy Corbyn can learn from him? Well, there are lessons that Jeremy Corbyn has already learned, I think. I remember just after the French presidential election, the Labour introduced, just to to mention a very trivial detail, they introduced a video game, and that's something that Mélenchon supporters had created, which sort of illustrated the programme in a slightly playful way. And I think the main lesson is just be as solid as you can Theoretically, if I had one slight criticism of Corbyn myself, it's precisely that indeed I never could find much substance in Corbynomics and much detail in the program, whereas the France Insoumise program is very, very thorough. I think that's important. Now, Jonathan has made the point that Mélenchon has no hope of becoming president, and he has actually called him a career socialist hack. I get the sense that you disagree with him. Um, do you think he has a serious chance at the presidency when it comes back around? Well, I would really, really love to have Jonathan Miller's crystal ball because in uh, our times of very great political uncertainties, I really don't know how he does have such certainties about who has chances of being elected or not. I think actually Mélenchon's career is very, very coherent. He was always someone who precisely wanted to govern. Yeah, this is Jonathan Miller actually presents him as someone who is just happy raking money in by standing as an eternal opponent. That's absolutely not true. So Mélenchon did his career in the Socialist Party to begin with because it was the party that had, had a chance to govern. And he did a very, very brilliant career, actually, became, becoming first a regional MP and then the youngest senator ever in France. Now you have Jonathan Miller pouring scorn on the French Senate. I don't know why. Then he became a very young minister. And now what has happened is that in 2012, Mélenchon scored 11% at the presidential election and the following one, so last one, almost 20%. And we have to 
take into account the extreme difficulty of opening a space within the two-party French system to realize how brilliant an achievement that is. And now he has gained enormous credibility, as is shown by the polls, but not only by the polls. It's also a matter of the, indeed, a political vacuum, since the Socialist Party is still uh, lingering in oblivion, and the Republican, the, the center-right, has drifted ever more to the far-right. So now it is a sort of freeway challenge between Macron, whose popularity is sinking very, very fast, and now Macron is even below François Hollande at this stage of François Hollande's presidency last time around. And François Hollande never ever the popularity back and he could not even run in the following presidential election. So I don't know how uh, Jonathan Miller can claim that Macron is almost sure of winning. That's, that's frankly hilarious. Whereas Mélenchon, you know, he continues building his base. Jonathan Miller even says that Le Pen has not a chance of winning. Well, after what happened in Italy, in Poland, in Hungary, in the USA, that's extraordinarily bold, honestly. So it's the broad ideological landscape is changing. Mélenchon is in the running, and I don't think anybody today can pronounce with such certainties on the issues of forthcoming elections. Now, shortly after Jeremy Corbyn met with Mélenchon, he gave his leader speech at the Labour Party conference where he said that the area of socialist ideas that Labour now operates has become the new mainstream and the centre ground of British politics. Do you think the Mélenchon's own brand of socialism has become the mainstream in France yet? Well, yes, absolutely. Actually, this is really interesting. So Macron, similarly, is trying to paint himself as someone who will reduce inequalities. Of course, he's focusing on inequalities of opportunities rather than substantive inequalities. He's also trying to present himself as a champion of the environment. And it was a very serious blow to him when his very popular environment minister, Nicolas Hulot, quits the government with such fracas. So certainly today, I don't think any politician can run a credible campaign without claiming that they are for equality, diminishing inequalities, obviously, and implementing very serious environmental policies. And that's been Mélenchon's platform ever since he left the Socialist Party. If you were going to place a bet, who do you think is more likely to take control in the leadership of their country, Corbyn or Mélenchon? I think, well, I don't know, precisely having no crystal ball, I don't think I would want to place a bet. I think Corbyn has the advantage of having, of being at the head of one of the two big parties. So that's obviously a very strong help. Although, of course, given the efforts that his own party make to undermine him, that can also turn against him. Mélenchon doesn't have the same sort of institutional position, if you like. But at the same time, in times when the public's affections swing very broadly and when there is a very strong anti-system trend, the fact that he is a new force independent from old party politics could play in his favour. Thanks, Olivia. Thanks so much for joining us. Jonathan, when Jeremy Corbyn met with Mélenchon at Labour conference, it did seem to spark talk of a bromance and the idea of the socialists taking over Europe. Um, however, you feel that Mélenchon is unfit to be the president of France. Why is that? Well, when it became known that uh, Mélenchon and, uh, and Corbyn had met at the, uh, at the fringe of the, uh, the Labour Party conference, it was uh, a big problem. Well, how, how would they communicate since Corbyn speaks no French and Mélenchon apparently no English? But they did find a common language in, uh, in the language of, uh, of Venezuela and Cuba, since they both admire so greatly uh, Mr. Castro and uh, Mr. Chavez. So I think they found something in common right away. I think it really has to be remembered by Olivier, no matter how idealistic he might be, that in the end, uh, only not quite 20% of France uh, voted for him in the uh, in the first round, and uh, and that's not really good enough. It's not to come in third. It's not to come in second. It's to come in fourth. 
And uh, with so many other leftist parties contesting the same ground, it's really hard to see how Mélenchon is going to make a breakthrough. So do you think there's anything that Jeremy Corbyn could learn from Mélenchon? Mélenchon could probably learn from Jeremy Corbyn that it actually makes sense to have a real political movement behind you. La France Insoumise is really a kind of a personality cult around uh, Mélenchon. There's not really a party infrastructure behind it, not in the same way as there is a Labour Party in Britain, which has been taken over by Corbyn and his uh, friends. So, uh, yes, uh, Mélenchon has a lot to learn from Jeremy Corbyn. Now, to many of us looking at the polls in France, we see that Mélenchon is now, in some ways, more popular than Macron. So that would suggest that perhaps he does have a chance at the presidency. I shouldn't pay that much attention to polls at this uh, stage of the electoral cycle. Almost anybody is going to score better than uh, Macron at the moment. But uh, these, uh, these numbers don't really count for very much. There's just, in my opinion, no mathematical way that uh, Mélenchon can put together enough votes to get into the second round of a presidential election. Perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps it would be Mélenchon versus Le Pen and uh, a grateful France would turn to Jean-Luc. But I, I, I'm willing to take the bet that I'm right. Now, Olivier has said that he would love to have your crystal ball because he doesn't think it's actually possible to make such bold predictions as yourself in your article and that you can't rule out a Mélenchon presidency or a Marine Le Pen presidency. What do you say to him? Well, I won't argue with uh, Olivier and um, his yearning for my crystal ball. Obviously, as a journalist, one is allowed to, uh, to forecast frequently and hope that people forget when you forecast wrongly. I think Olivier uh, may very well be right, and I may very well be wrong. I'm merely putting forward the theory that I don't think Mélenchon is an electable candidate. How similar is Mélenchon to Jeremy Corbyn? Well, Mélenchon and uh, Corbyn do have similarities. Uh, they're both, both old men. Uh, they're both uh, politicians who've never, never really accomplished anything concrete in their lives. Corbyn was never a minister, Mélenchon only briefly a minister. They both seem to have a, a weakness for Bolivarian communism. They both admire Fidel and they both admire Hugo Chavez and I think this is a bit odd that they should admire people like this. So there's, there are things in common but in the end I think uh, Corbyn is a superior politician. And the very last thing, do you expect to see Mélenchon still in politics in five years time? In a sense he's kind of part of the eternal landscape of France and you can see him being around but I don't think his heart is really in it I don't think he really wants to win I don't think he wants to be held responsible for what's going to go wrong and I don't think he wants the hard work I think he prefers uh, appearing on TV programs. Thank you Jonathan Jonathan and Olivier thank you for joining us and that's all for this week if you enjoyed this podcast do subscribe rate and review on the iTunes store we would love to hear from you and do pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as more from Rod Liddell, Mary Wakefield and James Forsyth. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. Mm-hmm.